0: You're seated. We turn now to Luke chapter 21, and we particularly give attention to verses 37 and 38. For the sake of some context, we'll read from verse 34 through chapter 22, verse 2, just to remind ourselves that the words that we consider are coming at the end of his sober reminding of his people and before and on the cusp of his great suffering. So from verse 34 of Luke 21 through verse 2 of chapter 20 to hear the word of God. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives." And all the people came early in the morning to Him in the temple for to hear Him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Him, for they feared the people. It's particularly verses 37 and 38 that we take up for our consideration this morning. And as we do, we acknowledge that such verses as these, are often the kinds of verses that we are tempted to just skip past. We take it as it is, a record of what is true, but we see in it perhaps not much that is there for our soul's good, which is, of course, as we grow in the Lord, easily a sign to us that we have misunderstood this portion. So we give attention to these two verses and as we do, we acknowledge that every revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ is precious. You think of this. His words, every word He spoke, we could say of them, Never man spake as this man spake. His words are full of grace and truth. Now, we can say, of course, that at times, other men have words that have grace and truth. But the language that's regarding Christ's words are that they are abundant and full and only full of those things. Think of His mighty works. How often did He display something of the great power He possessed only to cause men to say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? His death elicited from the soldier that confession, truly, this man was the Son of God. And His resurrection, as we are told, declared Him to be the Son of God with power. Now these are quick summaries, of course, but the point is, everything about Christ, if we have eyes to see, will cause us to see the great beauty of Christ. Here we have an easily overlooked aspect of such beauty. Because before us is a display of Christ's devotion to our good. Notice the language. In the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. And at night, he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. What we have in the text is his day's work. And so you'll notice the daytime was spent teaching. Now, the temple is here identified not it seems because that Christ chose the temple over other places in general, but because at this time the Passover was coming near and crowds would have been amassing at that time. And so He's having uh, this opportunity to teach and instruct. Now think of this for a moment. He is on the cusp of the greatest agony known to anyone in all time and eternity. And yet, He's spending the day serving people, instructing them, patiently enduring their ignorance, their willful neglect. Many of them would have been taught by Him before, only to be taught again by Him. Notice His evening's retreat at the end of verse 37. He retreated from the busyness and the bustle of the city to the Mount of Olives, which is similarly recorded in John chapter 8 when it says in verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives and early in the morning He came again unto the temple and all the people came unto Him and He sat down and taught them. And so He is going outside of the city where it was a bit quieter and peaceful, more peaceful, which of course was His frequent practice not only to the Mount of Olives which is regularly indicated in the scriptures but this balance of earnest indefatigable labor and yet his own need to as it were be restored in prayer and retreat so for instance you can see a glimpse of this in mark's gospel in chapter 6 when christ sends his disciples and notice in mark 6 and verse 45, that here Christ is sending away the people. Verse 46, when He had sent them away, He departed into a mountain to pray. And it says, when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and He alone on the land. Now, of course, this sets up for a great miraculous display of Christ, but don't miss this point that Christ didn't extend Himself with great effort in service only to retreat for idleness. He retreated for renewing his own soul in communion with his Father. And so his spending unto others was by his ability to be renewed in communion with the Father. Now, of course, we don't deny that Jesus Christ is Himself fully God. But we must not deny that He likewise is fully man. And He indeed has still, as the glorified Savior, a true human soul that demanded communion with the Father. Paul speaks of himself and other faithful ministers as spending and being spent. Well, just as Paul was one who needed restoring and fellowship with God, so Christ was one who was restored by fellowshipping with the Lord. And is there not something here for us? As the world acknowledges the need for breaks, and doubtlessly we have need of breaks, we should see here that our greatest need is spiritual recreation. That inward intake that we then would be fit to serve. But You'll notice that so soon as the day broke, He was found again returning to His labor. Verse 38, And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Now pride, of course, among men says, well, this is what I want. I want people to seek me. And yet those who have any sense of the difficulty of public labor realizes this is often a trial and an affliction. And especially when we consider what's about to happen. That he's about to be sought out and undergo great misery." And He knew all of that. Remember, He had said previously, we have to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He knew all of what was going to happen. And yet, He does not take, as it were, this approach that says, I'm done with men. I need my time. I need me time. I need to schedule that. He had spiritual renewal in communion with His Father but He was expending Himself for the good of His hearers. The point of all of this passage is to give us a summary glimpse into the constant devotion that Christ had to His ministry of saving sinners. In these two verses, we don't have all of the glory of the miraculous works and of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ We don't have insight, as it were, to His ongoing mediation as He intercedes in heaven. But what we have is the essence of all of that before us in His unfading commitment to serve. Every waking hour is, as it were, being spent either in open and direct public service or in the necessary spiritual renewal so that He may serve. This shows us something of Christ. That Christ's orientation was one of ever and constantly seeking the good of others. Now, as John 17 reminds us, this isn't divorced from or separated from His devotion to His Father's will. But as even His prayer makes plain, His Father's will was for the good of His people. And so we see this beautiful harmony between these things, Jesus Christ is constantly devoted to his ministry of saving sinners. You'll remember, of course, that Christ exercises a threefold office. Children, you should know this. He is prophet and priest and king. And all of these offices, these three offices, are combined in all that he's doing. But we can notice, for instance, that as prophet, he is instructing sinners in the will of God for their salvation. And particularly, we see that emphasized here. Elsewhere, we see His intercession in prayer. We see on the cross, His uh, suffering on their behalf as propitiation, as the substitute. Other places, we see more particularly His glorious rule as King. And yet, all of these that come into greater focus for us are united in this message. Christ is constant and constantly devoted to doing that which is needed for the salvation of His people. Just as a brief confirmation, consider the beginning of His ministry as noted in Psalm 40. We're always struck as we continue to live by the ignorance of people who say, oh, you Christians who say you should sing the Psalms, you sing words which don't speak speak of Christ. We have to be left with this thought. They're either ignorant or they are themselves denying what the Scriptures say of the Psalms, the Word of Christ, and are ignorant themselves of reading the Psalms. Psalm 40, for instance. Notice in verse 6, these are the words of Christ as Hebrews makes plain. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened for an offering and sin offering hast thou not required? Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Though I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest, and so on. What's the point? From the very entrance upon his ministry, even as he's considering the Incarnation, He's saying, I delight in this and I devote myself to this. Now, we could think, mistakenly, that Christ, after He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, therein finished His ministry. Certainly on the cross, He finished His substitutionary death. But we find elsewhere, for instance, in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, the confirmation that Christ is still devoted to His ministry, at all times, even now. Verse 24, This man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Notice this point. That Christ ever liveth to make intercession for them, He is consecrated as priest forevermore. So what we see in the text before us is not merely a historical fact of what took place. It is a historical incident displaying what is constantly true of Christ. That at all times, He is constantly, continually, devoted to His gracious ministry, which should cause us, who are the objects of that love and the concern of His service, tremendous encouragement to remember that Christ is still what He was then. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we glimpse this faithfulness and this constant adherence to the work of His ministry, we should connect that to this fact that He is still what He was, still devoted to the service of salvation for us, His people. So briefly consider three things as we press on. Firstly, the focus of His ministry. Secondly, the labor. And thirdly, the timing. So the focus of His ministry, particularly highlighted here, was His teaching. Now, this is not unique to this passage, of course, though it records here that he was teaching in the temple. And then the opposite side of it, you could say, is acknowledged in verse 38 when the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. So he's teaching and others are hearing. So he's given to this ministry of instruction. So what we can say of the focus of his ministry. Is that he was devoted, and we can say is devoted still, to instructing us in the way of salvation. And this was foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 a prophet like unto me God will raise up. Him must ye hear, right? You must pay attention to his words. His instruction is instruction of life, it's not optional, it's not something for a higher, loftier level among. Believers, it is itself most required and essential. Now, you can think of this for a moment and how precious it is that Christ was focused on this. As parents, there are times when we're tempted to say, I've already told you this enough, you know, you should figure it out by now. Well, surely, if ever there was one who could say to any of us, I've told you enough times, you're left to yourself, it's Christ. And yet, Christ comes with diligence again and again and again to His people. He doesn't give that privilege to all people. He said that in His prayer, didn't He? I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Think of the privileged Christian you have that by His gracious covenant, He has brought you in so that He is constantly praying for you. And He constantly so arranges in providence the means of instruction, even if, as with John, you're exiled to the isle of Patmos. Yet still, His Word is able to be sustained in your mind and in your soul. He's ever instructing His people. And you saw it in John 17 as well when He says in prayer, Sanctify them by Thy truth. Then what does He say? Thy Word is truth. And so the whole spectrum of salvation, Romans 10, we'll touch on that this afternoon, when it is that faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, so that which is needed if ever one should be saved is by instruction, and once saved if there should ever be growth in grace is by instruction. And here's the great news. Christ is devoted to instructing you in the way of salvation. Both initially unto our conversion and then ongoingly in our increase of knowledge and grace. We shouldn't mistake this. This isn't just sort of a happening of history the way it takes place. It takes place because we have a faithful Savior who is seeking out His people to teach them in the midst of all of else what's going on. Remember this. Don't lose sight of this. The same Christ who teaches us is the same Lord of heaven and earth who upholds the stars. The same One who is teaching you right now is the One who knows precisely what's taking place everywhere in the galaxy and is overseeing every detail. The beasts of the deep, He's guiding and providing for them. The birds of the air, He's directing them. The stars in the heavens, the planets in our solar system, That same God, the Son of God, is upholding these things, directing all things, and yet He is devoted to ensuring that you are instructed in the way of salvation. All of this is a testimony of His tremendous condescension to us. May I say for just a moment, How ungrateful we are when we purposefully neglect His Word. And we say things like, you know, it's just been a long day. We'll get to it later. Or, you know, it's been a hard week. We're going to pass by it and so on. And all of this is to say in effect, I know that you're God. I know that every Word of God is like silver refined seven times. I know that it's food for my soul. I know that You've ordered heaven and earth that I could have the Word of God in my own language. I know that You've provided means of grace in my place at my time that I could go to. But I'm going to choose self, or family, or friends, or other things instead of learning from Christ. Do you remember what Christ said? of the woman who sat at His feet. There are the sisters. Martha, troubled about, cumbered with much serving. And there, Mary. And it's she, Christ says, who has chosen the good part, the thing that should not be taken from her. What was it she chose? She chose, in the midst of all else that was going on, to sit at the feet of Christ. Her choice will be shown on the last day to be the choice that should be chosen by all of us. Everything that competes for this is unworthy of what Christ offers to you. Everything that would shove itself into our schedule and say, put aside the Bible. You know, you need time on YouTube to sort of veg out and let your mind wander. You need time to play these video games. You need time to do these things. If that's crowding out God's word, it is unworthy of your time. You need time to sort of walk around. Well, if that's crowding out God's word, you don't. It's not denying that we need time for lawful recreation, but lawful recreation ought never to crowd out what is most needed for our souls. That's the priority. And see how earnestly Christ is devoted to it. He is giving Himself. The volume never turns down. He's never hitting pause. He's always, as it were, pursuing and saying, I am holding out to you what your soul most desperately needs. While the world says, well, you don't need so much of it. And the world says, well, you can take a little of it, but have more of Me. Christ is with constancy, Focusing upon the one thing needful. He doesn't need it, understand. You and I need it. And He knows that. And instead of being spurned by our often ingratitude, He is, as it were, here in the days of His earthly ministry, sacrificing His time and energy to ensure that His people would be instructed in the way of truth. By this instruction... He's showing mercy. He's showing kindness. He's pursuing us who, left to ourselves, would deafen our ears and busy our time idling away with things on the last day, which will be seen to be utterly worthless. Children, it's hard for us, perhaps, to be told by our parents, take out the trash, right? We don't want to do that. It would be overwhelmingly difficult if our parents said, dig through the trash from last week. Pull out whatever's there and eat it. You would be standing back and saying, no chance, I'm not doing that. This is what I want you to realize. The world's pursuit of you is telling you to eat trash. When Christ's pursuit of you is providing you the richest provision for your soul forever. But you know, children are not the only ones who need to hear that. You adults need to realize this. All of those things that crowd out God's Word is as refuse compared to what Christ is pouring out and saying, here is instruction unto life. Here is the way of salvation. Someone says, well, I'm saved. I'm converted. And yet, where in the Bible does it say we're now to set aside as instruction? In fact, there's word of reproof. By the time you ought to be teachers, you're still in need of learning the elementary principles of God's Word. Why is that? Because though converted, they had ignored what Christ was holding forth to them. Brethren, we need to be stirred up by the devotion of Christ to see if He's earnest about it then how earnest we ought to be in order to receive it. Well, secondly, the labor of His ministry. We see the focus. He's devoted to our good. Always remember that. Dear believer, Christ is devoted to your good. Never is He for your harm. Never is He for your loss. You say, but He's caused me to lose things. Here's where you need to realize something. When He has caused you to lose something, it ultimately is for your good. It may be difficult. It may be painstaking in our effort to realize. However, the last day will show that Christ has always and only been devoted to our good. But notice then, the labor, the work of His ministry... Verse 37, it says, in the daytime. Verse 38, early in the morning. Obviously, among us, there are different personalities and people are those who consider themselves outgoing and others are uh, those who are sort of hidden within. They're extroverts and introverts. Often, people have a mistaken notion about what they are themselves and they tell others, well, I'm an extrovert. And everyone else is quite clear, no, you think you are. You may talk a lot, but you're actually quite withdrawn. And the opposite is true as well. While you're quiet, that's not introversion. That's not being introverted so on. Why do we make this point? Well, notice, whereas we use those things and say, this is what I want to do, this is what I don't want to do. Whether we are characterized as an extrovert or introvert, think of this for a moment. He has labored for three years. He has seen the numbers of His disciples shrink. He has been accused of falsehood, of blasphemy. He has been refused. He's already had, as it were, threats upon His life. And He knows, as we'll consider briefly in a moment, what's about to happen. Extrovert or introvert doesn't matter. Personality doesn't matter here. Who among us would say, this is what I want to do? I want to be in the midst of the people and deal with them. But Christ in all of this is spending the whole of His waking day instructing people. And you know this, if ever you've had any opportunity to teach, whether a child or a friend, you think of how often you labor only to be misunderstood and have to follow up with that again. And the difficulty and the labor of it. You know, professional teachers realize this. There is this enchanting romanticism that captures, oh, I want to teach children. And then they're in the the classroom for an extended time and they say, what was I thinking? You know, the labor of this is difficult. Whatever the best teacher in the world has experienced with the most difficult of students in the world, no one has faced the distance between Christ the Son of God and mere mortals who are sinners. Think of that for a moment. When you've been discouraged because of what you've seen in your children or in people you've taught, and you say, why is it they're not getting this? You know, and we have to then take and say, well, it's, possibly, it's possibly the fact that I have you know, not put it the way they should hear it, or have not said it in the tone that I should say it, or have not followed the right scope and sequence, that's all possible. We can't say that of Christ. Christ was always perfect in His words, perfect in His tone, perfect in His timing, and yet, much of His earthly ministry was met with the discouragement of people who would turn aside and not fully comprehend. Think of this for a moment. You can understand this if you think in the midst of his hearers would have been Peter. What is Peter about to do in a few days? He's about to openly deny Christ. I never knew him. You know, No, I'm not one of his. In his company is Judas. And Judas, as just a few verses will display, is about to be the very instrument of his betrayal. Christ knew this. And yet, none of that took Him off of His work. He was pouring Himself into the constant labor, the difficulty of dealing with those who are darkened in their understanding, those who are weak in their understanding, those who are full of zeal and they sprout as it were and they give all of this apparent hope only to when trial comes to wither and so on. He had all of that before Him. But never once did He as it were lessen his commitment in fact it seems quite the opposite's true he increased his pouring out of himself unto them in these final days of his earthly ministry notice the language verse 38 early in the morning some of us will have earlier waking hours later waking hours all of that's the case But the point is this, early in his day, early in the day itself, he was found teaching. And in the waking day, he was teaching. Only retire for renewal that he would then come and do it again. And the whole day would be spent that way and then he'd come and do it again. And the whole day was spent that way and he'd come and do it again. Brethren, there's something here that's impressive of course for us, but we need to see the main thing. Christ is laboring with diligence for the good of those that hear Him. He's not just focused on say this is important. He's showing the priority there by spending Himself for it. He is devoted to this not just by saying this is important, not just by appointing you know, an occasional lecture here, an occasional lesson there, but He is, with all of His waking day, spending Himself to instruct. And again, brethren, none of this has changed. In fact, as He's entered upon His glory, we can say it's only multiplied. So think of this, when you and I fall asleep, Christ is actively teaching elsewhere in the world. Already on this day of the calendar, Christ has been instructing His people in the eastern portion of the globe. Presently, by the Word, He's instructing people in our portion and later more in the West and so on. The point is, He is constantly working still to instruct us. And think of this for a moment as well. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you'll have to be among those who confess to this. The Lord has taught me and I've ignored it. The Lord has taught me and I've resisted it. The Lord has taught me, I've acknowledged it, I've confessed it, but I've gone against it. And yet, what is Christ doing still right now to you? But He's teaching you. And He's, as it were, preaching to you. Why? Because He's still laboring in His ministry, albeit glorified in heaven. Remember when Christ is about to ascend, they're recorded in Matthew 28, he says to the apostles and by them ministers of the gospel that all authority is given unto him in heaven and in earth. And he commissions them to go to the uttermost parts of the world to do what? Certainly to baptize, but to make disciples of all nations. And he says as this with an encouragement, Lo, I am with you always. Paul was able to say to the Ephesians that they had heard Christ. They had never heard Him in His incarnate ministry in this world but they had heard Him by the proclamation of His Word in their midst. Christ has said in in Revelation 1 that He's the One who holds the seven stars in His right hand. What are the seven stars? The angels, the ministers of the seven churches. He walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What are the seven golden lampstands? The churches. He is in the midst. You can see it in Psalm 22. He's in the congregation singing praise to the Father. He is constantly active, laboring still for the good of His people. What we see in John 17, how can we call it a whisper? And yet, it's giving us an insight onto the totality of His orientation to the Father's glory and the good of His people. That is our Savior. He is devoted to our good. Our everlasting good. It's still true today. What we see here is not something of a historical artifact and record only. It is that. But it gives us insight to the devotion Christ has in pursuing each of us that we would know the truth, be set free by the truth, be sanctified by the truth, to the glory of God by his grace. Well, lastly, notice the timing of his ministry and as you do you have to look of course beyond these two verses you can notice how significant his devotion is in noticing a few things that are about to happen firstly notice that all of this diligence on behalf of others is on the eve of ordinances So you have the Passover, verse 1 of chapter 22. And of course, this is of tremendous weight. It's astounding for us to imagine this. To understand this, we should say, Christ is the Passover, ultimately. Passover points to Him. But there's the other ordinance that's going to be the hinge reality of this when He establishes the Lord's Supper. All of that's taking place. Now think of this for a moment. It surprises us at first, and we're often slow to the uptake, but when the intensity of God's ordinances come, we often find ourselves busy with all sorts of distractions. It's no wonder that on the Lord's Day, we have all sorts of things into our mind. We have all sorts of things that are saying, do this, do that, do the other thing. And it's no wonder that when the Lord's Supper is appointed to come, That all of a sudden we think, well, you know, I need to be with a family. I'm going to ignore the preparation service. And the Lord's Supper is important, but, you know, why stay through and so on? And we have all of these things that crowd in upon us and would cause us for a moment to say, look at all the other things I have to do. And we have to fight, as it were, to get ourselves, all of us have to do this, to get ourselves focused on the main thing and say, no, clear the schedule. You know what? All these other things, they are so beneath. The privilege of, in this time, the Passover. In our time, the Lord's Supper. And we have to labor to get our own souls fixed upon those things. It's difficult for us. Well, Christ has all of those ordinances coming. And yet, He is still committed to serving others. He is devoted. He's saying all of the things that I need to do He's doing them. You can see that as implied when He goes in the evening to the mount which is called the Mount of Olives. And He's there, as it were, being renewed and communion with the Father and so on, prayer and quiet meditation. And then He comes back. You can see this wonder. The timing of His pouring of Himself into others is a season which we know by experience is fraught with all manner of things vying for our attention. And yet Christ has such laser focus that he says, nothing, nothing's going to take me away from caring for my people. Moreover, if that weren't enough, think of the mounting opposition that is coming his way. No one else could see it at this time. But Christ saw the cresting of the wave that was about to crash on him. Put yourself in that position for a moment. We've heard of tsunamis. We've heard of great storms and so on. We have had hurricanes pass through and surges that come up. Think of this for a moment. There on the beach, and you see the wave mounting up that is meant for your upheaval and destruction. Doubtlessly, you are concerned about that. And you say, you know what? Whatever else is my responsibility, really the pressing thing is to ensure that I'm okay. Christ sees all that's transpiring. He knows the chief priests and the scribes are already planning how to kill Him. He knows that in His midst, they're every day, think of this, every day He saw the face of Him who in a few days would come to Him with a kiss and betray the Son of God. Every day He saw Peter who would be an instrument of torment to his own soul. It's striking, isn't it? As soon as Peter denies Him the third time, Christ is passing by and meets eyes with Peter. He knew all of this. All of this is coming. The wave is raised up and the force of it is about to consume Him. And yet, what is He doing? He is focused and devoted to the good of others. I mean, humanly speaking, this resonates with us. We hear of policemen, for instance, who hear of those in trouble, and they run toward the shooting. They run into the flames. They go into the danger. And they risk their lives for the benefit of others. And it's right and good that society honors such men who do these sacrificial things. But no sacrifice, no self-denial can even compare to what Christ is doing. That He is pouring Himself into others knowing that He is about to have the fullness of the wrath of God poured out upon Himself. And think of this, for the very people He's teaching. All of that's upon Him. All of that's known truly, really by Him. And yet, He plants Himself early every morning to teach people the way of salvation. This shouldn't be a shock to us in truth because all of that is showing us this thing. When Christ came to do the will of His Father for saving His people, He delighted to do it. He's not coming and saying, well, I guess I've got to do this now. And I know all that they're going to do and what I have to suffer. He counted it His delight to do these things for us. Moreover, of course, all of this opposition would be to the end that He would endure such grief as we must confess is unable to be fully comprehended by us. All the shame that He would embrace, the nakedness of His body exposed, not just to men, but to the birds of the air, the insects that would harm Him, the beatings of His face beyond recognition, the thorns that would be crushed upon His head, the nails driven through His wrists and His feet, all of the mockings of men and the casting of the same in His teeth by the thieves, and all of this taking place, knowing that it would come, He pours Himself still into the good of His people. Brethren, if ever we had a doubt that Christ is devoted to our spiritual good, these two verses should wipe them from the record and say, what a fool I am to think that Christ is not devoted to my good. These two verses on their own testify of that. And the whole of the Scriptures indeed confirm the same. So brethren, as we close, here is something as we've waded through the difficulty of all of this thought. As a believer, you ought to wonder and delight yourself in this. The unalterable devotion of Christ to you. You need to own that. Not because you're worthy of it. Not because any any of us is worthy of it. We don't own it in the artificial worldly sense and say, well, why wouldn't He do this? Of course, you know, I'm worthy of this. We say this is the wonder, not only that He did this and does this still, but He does this in spite of the fact that I don't have one claim upon Him as to worthiness. Such is the love of Christ to us. Isn't it striking that when Sin is discovered. It seems Satan pounces upon us, and, uh, upon us and says things like, See how you don't deserve and you have no claim upon Christ. And we take the bait and we say, This is, woe is me, you know, and there's no hope for me, and so on. Now, surely we ought to humble ourselves, but we should actually leverage that and say, Wait a second, when have I ever had a claim upon Christ? When I was praying, did I have a claim upon Christ? When I was walking in accordance to His law, did I have a claim upon Christ? The answer is no. Christ's blessing of us is not because of our earning of it. It is because of the free love of God to us in that He set His love upon us before the foundation of the world that we should be in Christ and thus holy and blameless in Him. Here is His immovable devotion of Jesus Christ. His devotion to your everlasting good. Now there's something here that should humble us because we should see for a moment how much more concerned Christ is for my good than I am. How much more interested Christ is for my good than I am. And yet, as soon as we have that hit us, it should actually elicit from us thanks. Thank You, O God, that how distracted I can become, how uh, overwhelmed I can become, how crowded out my life can become, my salvation rests upon one who is entirely devoted to my good. I might say a word to those who perhaps are without Christ. Just for a moment, let me ask you, where can you find this love in the world? You can't. I mean, that's the simplicity of it. Your friends will never be able to supply this kind of love. Your spouse will never be able to supply this kind of love. Your pastor will never be able to supply this kind of love. The world in all of its parties and scenes of revelry, the world in all of its pretended charity and even its real charity, all of it has faults and failures and difficulties and trials. But Christ's love to His people, is constant and unchanging. And think for a moment the privilege that Christ comes to sinners and says, come to Me. And He testifies to them that He will forgive them and receive them. And as they come to Him, then it is that He will show them this same love unendingly. Christian, believer, believer, Fill your soul with the knowledge of His love to you. And when that whisper comes in and says, I'm not worthy of it, I don't deserve it, say, yes, that only magnifies His love to me. Unbeliever, humble yourself to see that what you refuse is the greatest good that any will ever know. And lay yourself before His feet and say, what a fool I am and have been. Have mercy on me that I might taste and see that God is good. Believer, know this, that the devotion we see here is a devotion that everlasting time and eternity will display without failure. So praise be unto God. Would you stand with me for prayer?